Hallelujah. If you'll just remain standing for a moment and open your Bibles to, uh, if you'll go, thank you, brother. If you'll go to the book of First Thessalonians, uh, chapter 1, and just kind of put your finger there. And then, if you will, go to Acts chapter 17. So, First Thessalonians chapter 1, and put your finger there, kind of hold your place. We'll be there in a minute, but we're going to read first in Acts chapter 17. And I want to say it's my joy to be with you this morning. And for those of you that I don't know personally, my name is Travis Sharp, and my wife April is with me. And along with uh, Tim and Adrian, we work with Unsheltered International. And it's uh, just a joy to be here, and I love uh, everything about this. Amen? I love church where I can throw on my blue jeans and my boots and preach. Uh, I had these same blue jeans on last week, but I was a little hesitant to wear my boots. I wore my my fancy city shoes because I was in Cincinnati, Ohio. But I told April this morning, she, she said, wear your boots. You're going to Fairview, Alabama. And so praise God, I feel at home. And it's my joy to fill in for Pastor Buchanan. He's doing an awesome job. Me and him talk all the time. And every time he calls me or I call him, uh, he never complains. He never says they won't do this. Or they, he says, man, let me tell you what the people at church are doing. Man, let me tell you what God did. And uh, so I praise God for him and praise God for you. I want to read uh, Acts 17, uh, starting in verse 1. The Bible says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas. And of the, doubt, uh, the, the, the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. Let's uh, leave off our reading there. Find your place over in First Thessalonians, and we'll pray and look at these verses as we go. Father, we love you, and thank you for your goodness, and thank you, Lord, for your grace. And I pray as we dive in to this message that you would teach me, help me, fill me, and touch us all, Lord. I don't know what needs are here, but God, you do. And you can take your word and minister to all of us in a special way. And God, that's what I ask that you do today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you. You can, can be seated. You know, several uh, years ago, there could be somebody in here that went through this, but several years ago, we all watched 
on the news, it seemed like 24 hours a day, as Hurricane Katrina wreaked havoc on the city of New Orleans. And you remember, I'm sure, seeing the devastation, the lives that were lost, and most of all, maybe, the the utter confusion and disarray that the city uh, fell into because, number one, it was one of the largest and worst natural disasters ever in modern history. And number two, because of that, they just weren't prepared. And for days and days and days and days, it was utter chaos in the streets. And then a decision was made by our government to send in a general from the army. And this man, General Honore, they said that when he got off of his helicopter, when the helicopter landed, they said as soon as his first boot hit the ground, he was cussing and barking orders. And they said that was the moment that things began to change. Well, prayerfully, the Apostle Paul wasn't cussing much when he came to the city of Thessalonica. But today, we're going to see that when Paul and his other companions arrived in Thessalonica, a city in, in the region of Macedonia, we'll find out that that's when things began to change. In the early stages of the church, right after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and then the day of Pentecost, when Peter began to preach and 3,000 were, uh, people were saved, and the, 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 the next few days, weeks, months, and years, as new believers began to be persecuted there in Jerusalem, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that the persecution for their faith caused them to literally be scattered about. This scattering about in Acts chapter number 8 was actually a good thing for the early church because it forced them to move out of their comfort zone. Anybody here ever experienced that? Me too. But the good news is they never shut their mouth. They never sealed their lips. As they were scattered and running for their lives, the Bible says everywhere they went, They went preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. One of the main people that caused this persecution in those early chapters of the book of Acts was a man named Saul of Tarsus. The Bible calls him, and he called himself later in life, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was one who wanted to put a a stop, a complete end to the preaching in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did everything in his power to stop it. And as a matter of fact, he was there in Acts chapter number 8 when Stephen was stoned. The Bible says he was consenting unto his death. In other words, he was an accomplice in his murder. And Stephen, you know, was a child of God. 
but, but God. In a way that only God could do. In Acts chapter 9, I reckon God was looking for somebody to be a key player in the early church to get the gospel to the Gentile world. And instead of looking down and finding the the, the cleanest, best young man among those that were already saved, God in his wisdom, I guess, just said, you know what? I'm going to save the worst one who has rejected me thus far. He reached down on the Damascus road and touched Saul, this one who had persecuted the church, and God saved him and called him into the ministry. If you fast forward to Acts chapter 13, that's where we find Saul along with another man named Barnabas, and they became the first two New Testament missionaries that were ordained and sent out by the local church in Antioch of Syria to be the first real, legitimate New Testament missionaries. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 9, it says that Saul, who also is called Paul, went about on that missionary journey preaching the gospel. And from that point on, We know him in the Bible as the Apostle Paul, one who was born out of due time. Over the next few years, Paul would make at least three missionary journeys. Some people interpret it as four distinct trips. On his first missionary trip, it was over a 1,400-mile round trip, and remember, No Delta, no Amtrak, no Chevrolet, and certainly no Ford. He might have broke down, amen, if there had been a Ford. I don't know. Or a Chevrolet. He made this trip by land and by sailboat. No Evernrude at this point in time. 1,400 miles. He went to Seleucia. On his first trip to Salamis, to a place called Paphos, Perga, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystria, Derby, and Atala. And then he reported back, and then he took another missionary trip after that. And it was on the second missionary trip that they went into Macedonia and came to the chief city of Macedonia, which was a city called Thessalonica. They preached, they ordained elders, and they started a brand new church there. And the record of that is what I read to you, Acts 17, 1 through 6 or 7. And First and Second Thessalonians are letters that the Apostle Paul wrote back as their spiritual father to instruct them, and to encourage them, and to help them as new believers. Are you with me? Say amen. Today I want to examine three aspects of the gospel as it came into the city of Thessalonica. I'm going to just mention aspect one and aspect two, and then I want to preach on the third one. Three aspects of the gospel... Coming to the city 
of Thessalonica. I want to show you, first of all, how the gospel was shared. Then I want to mention how the gospel was received. And I want to expound on how the gospel was effective. How many of you know that when God shows up, business picks up? Amen? I know in my life that, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me give you this. The Bible tells us in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, in verse 5, that the gospel came to them in power, in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance. Paul and Silas and Timotheus, and there was probably many others with Paul on this missionary journey, when they found their way to this new city, this was a region beyond, somewhere they had never been to before. They found their way there. They went to the synagogue of the Jews and preached a complete new message. Basically, it was out with the old, in with the new. Basically, it was Christ has come. He's given his life. He's fulfilled all the law. You don't have to do all this tradition, uh, uh, law-keeping stuff anymore. If you'll place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can have forgiveness, remission of your sins, and you can be a new creation in Jesus Christ. But notice how the gospel was shared. And I'm going to breeze through this and just tell you this. According to chapter 2 and verse 2, it was shared with boldness. With boldness. They had just left Philippi preaching. And Philippi is the place where, where, where they were literally kicked out of the city, arrested, and beaten. How about that for a reception? When I got here today, Shane had me a bottle of water and my wife a cup of coffee. I don't reckon the Apostle Paul ever got that. So he had just left being harassed and persecuted. Then he comes over to Thessalonica and in verse 2 he says, But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. In other words, it was hard work. It wasn't easy, but they shared the gospel with boldness. They also shared the gospel with genuineness. According to chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, they shared it with gentleness in chapter 2 and verse 7. And they shared the gospel message with willingness in chapter 2 and verse number 8. Matter of fact, they told them they were willing to impart the good news of Christ and willing to invest their own lives. How about, have you ever known somebody who not only preached God's word, but also invested lock, stock, and barrel? Everything they had invested their time, their finances, their family in the work of the Lord? 
kind of like your pastor has done here. Kind of like maybe many of y'all, if there's somebody here this morning that came over in the very beginning of the gospel here in Fairview a few years ago, you left one place and you said, I want to go impart the word of God to this community and invest my own soul to see people saved by the grace of God. So that's how the gospel was shared. But notice how the gospel was received. We find out in chapter 1 and verse 6 that the gospel was received by Thessalonica. It was received with much affliction. Verse 6 of chapter 1 says, And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. When Paul came and preached, it literally caused an uproar. It literally caused a riot. The religious, the, the, the religious zealots that were there were exactly like he was before God knocked him off his high horse on the Damascus Road. And some of you that know your Bible real good will laugh about that, the pun in that. He literally knocked him off his horse. And can you imagine what the Apostle Paul thought? Maybe he thought, if you folks only knew what I know now, if you only knew the love and the mercy and the grace, I imagine as he opened and, and was alleging and preaching and sharing the, the gospel day after day in Thessalonica, I'm sure his heart burned within him. And I'm sure when he saw all them Pharisees, he saw himself. You ever looked at a family member? Or a dear friend and thought to yourself, man, if they could just know what I know about God. Boy, I have. The gospel was received with much affliction, but it was also received with much assurance in faith. In chapter 2, verse 13. The scripture says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh in you also, also in you that believe. They received it with assurance and they received it with much activity. In verse 9 of chapter 2, the Bible tells us that when they got Christ, they began to change their lives. Much activity. So that's how the gospel was shared by the apostles. How it was received by the people. But I want to get to number 3. How the gospel was effective. How was it effective in this city. Notice just a few things here. Number one, 
it brought help for their problems. When the gospel came, help was right there with it. When the message of grace arrived, the help of grace also arrived. Notice this with me. We know that the people of Thessalonica had many, many problems. They were involved, according to the scriptures, we know they were involved in idol worship, fornication, lust. They were ignorant of the truth. They had many, many, many problems. But for those of them who received the word of God at the apostles' preaching, the gospel became like a hand grenade in the middle of their stuff. It just blew things all to pieces, but ironically, back together at the same time. Have you ever had your life turned completely upside down, but it felt for the first time right side up? That's what they experienced. They turned from idols and began to worship the one true God. They turned from fornication and began to live holy in their bodies. They turned from lust and began to have godly, pure thoughts. They embraced truth and overcame their ignorance. How did the gospel bring help for their problems? By changing their hearts. The gospel literally changed their hearts. You see, the gospel was effective for them because it got in them. It worked for them and on them because it got in them. You know... The Bible tells us in Romans 8, 9 through 11, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in In you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. You see, folks, when we get saved, we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Say, what's the gift of the Holy Ghost? It's the Holy Ghost. In other words, when we get saved, the Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost, comes and takes up residence in our heart. What? Know ye not, your body is the temple of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body, which is the Lord's. God lives in those who are saved. He dwells in us. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1 says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God got in them and that put them in God. Are you with me? The point here is this. God changed their hearts because God moved in. Because the gospel was in them, it began to work its way out of them. And that working out brought real help. Did you know the Bible instructs us to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? The Bible never says to work for it. But the Bible does say, after you have it in you, work it out. In other words, put the gospel to work. That's what makes less and less fights at the house. Am I preaching now? That's what tempers our anger. That's what checks us up on the inside before we, whatever it is we The gospel brought help for their problems. You know, the problem, the heart of the problem is, is, is a problem of the heart. That's why in the book of Proverbs, it says, My son, give me thine heart. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he thanketh in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 4.23, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Proverbs 14.30, a sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. I grew up with an alcoholic for a dad. My mom and dad divorced when I was 13 years old, and Then I got saved at the age of 18 and I began to pray that my dad, that God would save my daddy. And you know what? After many, 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 many years, God did save my daddy. And God began to work on my daddy. And God took alcohol from him and and all kinds of other stuff. And and then I guess he got tempted by that Kentucky moonshine because he started drinking moonshine again. But it didn't last long before the moonshine and diabetes had a mortal combat. And they found Daddy out in the backyard laying passed out in a seizure. And I stayed with my dad for how many days, April? A month? 20, 30 days? He almost died two or three times. But we nursed him back to health by the grace of God. And the day I left my dad's house, he hugged me. And he said, what can I do to repay you for staying here and helping me for a whole month? And I said, just leave that moonshine alone, Daddy. And with big old tears in his eyes, he cried and he said, you can count on that. I was just up there last week. Me and my daughter stopped by. And we got to, he, he, not we, he got to rejoicing about when he got saved and then when he really fully surrendered, and he was telling me how many, mu- or how many years it's been since he's had any 
old Milwaukee light or moonshine. And he said, you know what? After all them years, I guess it just took a heart change. Amen. Do you need help today? I guarantee you the gospel can do that. Let me give you number two. Not only did it bring help for their problems, but the gospel brought love for their community. You see, there was no Christian community before this, but after a great multitude of people got saved and elders were ordained, that that basically means preachers, deacons, things like that, and, and the church was formed, now there was a brand new Christian community. That's what a church is. It's a local uh, a congregation of Christian believers that gather together. And the gospel brought love to them. How? By binding them together. I'm getting this from chapter 2, uh, verses 9 and 10. The Bible tells us their love was not lacking. It says, ye yourselves were taught of God. To love one another. In other words, basically as soon as they got saved, God put it on the inside of their heart to love each other. And there's a lot of us here. God did that same thing. Is there anybody here that's got a friend in church somewhere that is closer to you than some of your own blood family? Look at the hands. You know why that is? It's because of the love that binds us together in Jesus Christ. Their love was not lacking and their love was not limited. Verse 10 says, They loved all the brethren that were in all Macedonia. In other words, not just their little group in Thessalonica. All the other believers in the region and area of Macedonia, they love them all. And you know what? Encouragement to you, admonition to you in fair view. God didn't put you out here just to love on one another. God put you out here as a local body, but as a part of the global community of the body of Christ to love on each other here first and everybody else after that. Amen. So you say, well, why, why was that so important? They had to have one another because of the persecution they faced. Hey, if they didn't have love one for another, who was going to help them? Who was going to look out for them? Who would be there when they needed something? Why do you think God says to, to love one another? Love your brother, love your sister. Folks, because we need each other. You may be sitting here all smug and think, well, I'm, I don't need nobody. Tell me that when you're in the hospital flat on your back and your wife needs a little help at the house. Come tell me you don't need nobody then. Tell me that when the church is persecuted. Tell me that when you're persecuted and you lose your job. Tell me that then. I'll confess to you, if it wasn't for my brothers and sisters in Christ, my life would be most miserable. I couldn't take off my boots and use my toes to count the and fingers to count the number of times that my 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 brothers in Christ have rallied around me from the simple things to the complex. I thank God for the love one to another in the church of God. Amen. 
It sure has helped my life. And they found out that love, it brought love to their community by binding them together and by building them stronger. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul told them to increase their love more and more. And in 2 Thessalonians, it starts out in verse 3 by saying, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because your faith groweth exceedingly, watch this, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. It built them stronger. I remember the day I got saved, it was August the 1st of 1994, and it was in Malcolm Carter Sr.'s driveway in Fort Pierce, Florida. I had come home from work with, with, uh, with Joe Carter, me and him was best buddies, and, and his daddy was outside, Joe went inside, and I stayed outside, and I was under conviction, and I went straight to Malcolm Sr., and I said, Preacher, I... I I need to get saved. It took everything I could, all the courage I had to say those words. We sat down in the front seat of his car under the carport, and he led me to Christ right there under the carport. Best day of my life by far. His wife, Sister Becky Carter, Preacher Malcolm's uh, mama, she was inside because Joe had done told her what was going on. She was peeking out the blinds watching I didn't know it then. I know it now because she confessed. We got through with everything, and he said, well, let's go inside and tell Sister Becky. I'm like, okay. And I used to hang around their house all the time because me and Joe were best friends, and, but, but something was different now. I remember we walked in that door, and Malcolm Sr. looked at his wife, Miss Becky, and he said these words. He said, Mama, Travis just got saved. And she opened her arms. She began to cry. And she said, oh, praise God, son, we've been praying for you. And I got my, I received my very first Christian hug. And I immediately found out these people really do love each other. It was like I was part of the team, like I was part of the club. And I want to say... I ain't got no regrets. No regrets. Maybe God has brought love to your house. Maybe he's brought peace through that love where you live. Amen. Let me give you the last one since I got four minutes and 40 seconds left. Not only did the the gospel bring help for their problems and love for their community, But we find out in this amazing little book that the gospel brought hope for their future. In chapter 4, verses 13 through through 18 or 19, that's the clearest picture of the rapture, the coming of Christ and the rapture of the church that we have in the whole New Testament. There it is in black and white right there. And the Bible tells us that the gospel brought hope for the future because, first of all, it it brought a promise to them. And what was the promise? The promise was that there is life after death. You see, the Bible says 
in verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. It is supposed that the people in Thessalonica, even the believers at the time that Paul wrote this letter, it is supposed by many theologians that they believed the same way the heathen people believed. That there's nothing after this life. That you die, you go to the dirt, and that's it. There's no hope of the resurrection of the body. And they had been puzzled concerning this new doctrine of the resurrection. And Paul writes this to them in a letter. And he says, for I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. In other words, I don't want you to not know. I want you to know. That's all it means. And he tells them, there's life after death. Can you imagine the hope that brought for this new community? All the sickness, all the pain, all the persecution, all the suffering. But this ain't the best. The best is yet to come. So it brought hope because it brought a promise. And there was a plan. In verse 15 through 17, we see the originator of this plan. The Bible says, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. In other words, it wasn't Paul's plan, wasn't Timothy's plan, wasn't Barnabas's plan, wasn't uh, Silas's plan. It was God's plan. But there was also not only the originator of this plan, but the order of this plan. He told him in verse number 16 about a return. He said, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. Folks, can I remind you today, soon and very soon, there's going to be a return. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, he's not sending a messenger, he's not sending an impersonator, the Lord himself shall return. And Boy, if that don't bring you hope, I don't know what to tell you. Let me give you a little nugget before I end this thing right here. In chapter number 2, verses 17 through 19. Boy, this is good. Don't, don't listen. Don't, don't miss this. Paul, remember, he's writing back to them. And he wanted to go see them again. He says in verse 17, 217, for But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time, in presence, not in heart, Endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. We're trying to come see you, he says. Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again. But Satan hindered us. Watch this. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Here's the nugget. Satan might have hindered Paul from going back to Thessalonica. But he can't hinder Jesus from coming back to the earth for his church. 
He's coming back. There's going to be a return. Praise God, there's going to be a resurrection. Verse 16 says, The dead in Christ shall rise first. And there's going to be a reunion. The Bible says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And there's going to be a presence. And so shall we ever be with the Lord in the presence of God. Can you see how the gospel brought hope to their future? If you've never been saved, the gospel can bring help to you. It can bring love to you and it can bring hope to you. And for those of you who are saved, that's what God can do through you when you take the gospel out there. I remember when I I preached my Granny Teal's uh, funeral years and years ago. And my sister, my older sister Pam, told me to say this, and I, I say it at every funeral I go to now. I stood it at the very end. I stood it at Granny's casket. And this is what I told the, the, the folks. I said, some of you, when I say my final prayer, some of you will walk by here, and you'll look, and you'll say goodbye. But some of you, You can walk by here in a minute, and you can say, see you in a little while. And that's the hope that the gospel brings. Hope for tomorrow. Amen. Let's all stand. I'm done. We're going to have an invitation time, and then we're going to pray and be dismissed.